found on page 951 of your pew bible if you would be so kind as to pick that up if you didn't bring your own bible to church it's always good to bring your own bible to church because the whole point of going through the how to read the bible series is to get you to be comfortable with your bible I want it not to be something that is foreign to you. So I want it to be something that, that you feel is part of you even. That you know your way through. It's important that you live in your Bible. And, and by that, I don't mean that you can never read anything else or have any other thoughts. But it's kind of like the way you treat your home versus the way you treat everywhere else. You have your home so that you can be good everywhere else. And you go other places to do things there, but you always want to go home. The Bible is your home. It's where you belong as a Christian. It is the story of who Jesus is, what he has done, and what he is coming again to do for you. And the most important thing we can do on the precipice of these dark ages in which we live as a Christian congregation is get comfortable with our home. I can do the same thing and talk about it being your sword and how imperative it is to be able to wield your sword well when you're out there doing battle with your mind against the many lies that are told both in the name of Jesus and against the name of Jesus. But I like this idea of, of being at home in the Bible. And we're going to see a piece of this for Paul himself in Romans 16, as he will talk about many, many names today. People that we don't even know who they are. But they're part of your home. They're part of your family. They're people who you are going to meet someday on that glorious day of resurrection, when we all arise to go to the marriage feast of the Lamb, we usher in an everlasting now, an eternal right now, in which these very same people will be there with us. And whoever else sets themselves against this future, whether we love them now or not, they won't be there. And so I want you to begin to think about these other people in the Bible as your real family. Just as I want you to think about the people who are here at St. Paul Lutheran Church or in any other truly Christian church as your family, your real family. And everyone else, even your real family, when they despise what God has surely said, the fact is, well, then they're not really your real family anymore. Jesus was very clear. He comes to set a sword into the households, dividing mother and daughter, father and son. If you do not hate your parents more than you love Jesus, you cannot follow him, he says. And this isn't about cruelty toward your parents. It's about recognizing the difference between the zombies of this present dying age and the new life, everlasting, regenerated people that are the Christian saints walking toward glory, among whom you are. As we also look at today in Romans 16, these warnings against false teachers, you can't forget who you are. The great danger in a text that's going to be about 
a warning that there are liars that live among us, that come into our church, that only want their own way, that threaten to divide and destroy us. The great threat is that you, dear Christian, would believe, maybe that's me. Maybe, maybe I don't really believe enough. Maybe, maybe I haven't really given my life to Jesus. That's called legalistic thinking, and I'm on a mission to get it out of your heart. I'm on a mission to convince you that you are under grace, that Jesus has chosen you, that you belong to him like a child. And so when he gives you a warning, don't do this, it's not so you can be like, oh, that's law heavy, or oh, I'm not so sure, or maybe I failed and he hates me now. It's so that you'll say, oh yeah, I don't want to do that. Even if you did it, oh, I don't want to do it again. Oh, I did it again, but I don't want to do it again. I want your spirit to believe, not that you have to prove something to God, or that he's about to trip you up and kick you out, but that every time you find that failing, you get to look up into his bloody hands that are reaching out for you to cover you with his love and know he's just calling you forward. And so all these warnings against false teachers are not here to make you question yourself. They're here to make you question what people say. Not so that you'll judge them as if you're better than them, but so that you won't listen to them when they're lying. Because they are lying to you. I mean, you know that, right? Like you, you turn it on. I don't know what it is. Something that looks like this. There's a phone in your hand. And you use a remote control. I don't care. You turn it on. They are lying. Like whatever they say, even when it's true, they're just using it to move you where they want you to go. And this is always, always, always about buying something. That's where we right now in our time need to see the false teachers are most active. Are you afraid? I have something to sell you. You won't be afraid anymore. I swear. Oh, you bought it. It only lasts for a year. Need a subscription. Hmm? That's the game. And once again, that's a surface level thing. And it doesn't expose everything. Don't get me wrong. But the goal here is that we as Christians, from what Paul's going to tell us, would learn to believe there's liars in the world. And A, we don't want to listen to them generally. B, we don't want to marry them if we haven't yet, young people. Huh? C, in the congregation, we don't at all want, let, want to let them drive our agenda, which especially means if you got one in the pulpit, you got to chase them out of town, as Luther says, pelt them with dung. Huh? Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, but all the more, it also means that you guard each other, right? This doesn't mean that you're like looking at your neighbor saying, oh, do they believe enough? It means that when you hear someone say something that's not true, you become one who's willing to question that. Are you sure that that's true? Huh? And you would have the, the, the conviction about, well, doesn't the Bible say this? To say it. Because in that way, you may indeed save your brother from great error. And truth be told, you may expose a liar whose conscience is seared, who you will at least know after they say, oh, I don't care what the Bible says. You'll at least know to say, well, I guess whatever they say doesn't mean that much to me anymore. They just don't have the wisdom anymore. I'm not going to live it. They don't, they don't like me. Oh, well. They don't like Jesus. Huh? 
That's the goal here, is that we, we, we would be such a place. This is not about hate. This is about love, although it is about hating the lie. It's about hating the lie. Okay, where I want to start, though, okay, there's, there's like three sections here. I talked about the greetings. I talked about the false teaching. We're going to look at that, but we're going to start at the end. I want you to look on page 951 at verse 25. After all the rest of kind of what I just said, as Paul says it, he concludes the entire book with this thing. It's called a doxology. That means a, a glorious set of words, right? You know, ology, biology, astrology, right? It's all about words about something, knowledge about something. So doxos, that's the Greek word glory. So a doxology is a, is a knowledge of glory, yeah? And historically, at least in the Bible, it will be a very brief praise of who Jesus is, what he has done, and often what he's coming again to do. And that's exactly what we have here. But I want you to see then the glory begins with it saying that God is going to strengthen you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you. Christianity is not about victimhood. Christianity is not about weakness other than repentance, but it's not about staying weak. It's about in your repentance, knowing you stand on grace, lifting your head up against those who claim to be strong in the world. You are being strong instead in the conviction of the Spirit. And that is not because you have done it. Whenever you have done it, you say only, I am but a worthless servant. But you have then done it, not because you've done it, but because God has done it to you. Think of it this way. You are not a horse beside the horse who is God pulling a cart that is your good works forward. It's more that you are in a cart called your good works and God is the horse pulling it forward. And that is again true. It's just the way that it is. I'm not sure, Pastor. Are you baptized? Yes, I'm baptized. Then you don't get a choice anymore. I mean, you do. If you would like to throw yourself into the fire of paganism, you may choose to. But most people who aren't sure, they're not like, I can't wait to go do some witchcraft. Instead, they're like, I'm, they're, you're questioning yourself, right? So, so if you're questioning yourself, stop questioning yourself. You know you're not trustworthy, but Jesus is. And he has sworn to you, an oath to you, that he is able to and going to strengthen you according to, Paul says, my gospel. My gospel. Paul's gospel? Yes, Paul's gospel. He talks about it this way, and he defined that for us very, very clearly back in Romans chapter 1. If you can keep your finger there and flip back to page 939. You'll see verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, there it is, which he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So this, this gospel, this good spell from God, it's, it's given in the Old Testament. What is it? Verse 3, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace. What's Paul's gospel? It is that the Son of David is risen from the dead. 
He is risen. Alleluia. The son of David is risen from the dead. And this is the good story. This is the antidote truth to the lies of the world. This is the history, not just a religion, the history that is going to change everything and is beginning by changing you simply by you hearing it. And you're here again because you believe it against all reason and strength. People don't rise from the dead. That's a nut job kind of idea, thing to believe. And yet here we are, and we're not alone. This is the biggest religion in the history of the world. It really has made more of an impact than any of the others. Huh? So he is able to strengthen you according to this gospel. He is risen. Now, as a doxology, Paul isn't just saying he's going to do this. He's saying, let's praise him for this. So to him who is able to do this. So remember, we're moving toward this praise moment, but he's going to continue by talking about then the gospel is the preaching of Jesus Christ, right? Which I just said, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. Now, this kind of means two things. In, in some places in the New Testament, the mystery is that God loves everybody, not just some people. And, and this especially comes forward in the mystery that was kept hidden from many, many Jewish people who were believers in the Messiah, that the nations, the, the Gentiles, that kind of meant the unclean, uncouth, heathen peoples, well, that they're going to get saved too. So that's the first part of the mystery. The mystery is that God isn't just going to save some. He has come to save all. Now, don't hear me saying that there won't be some who won't be saved. That's not what I said. But that the proclamation is for all. The atonement is for all. He does not hold out his arms as a lie to anyone. He invites all who are weary and heavy laden to come. And he is going to give rest. That's the first part of the mystery. The second part is the incarnation. That in order to do this, the God who no one could see, the God who no one could touch, the God who is afar off, he has entered into becoming Emmanuel. That he loves man and creation so much that he wants to dwell with us as one of us forever. Again, that was kept secret. You can search the Old Testament for it. You can find it there, but it's always like a riddle. It's always sort of like a, what's going to happen when the Messiah comes? It sure sounds like he's pretty powerful. It sure sounds like God intends to dwell among his people. Is this even possible? And then you know the story of that night in Bethlehem. And the angels sang. Yeah. So again, the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed. Right? Paul preaches it. I'm preaching it. The church everywhere preaches it. The creeds confess it so we never forget what we're supposed to preach. And through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. What's the early church preaching? The fulfillment of the Old Testament. I think you can also include in this prophetic writing statement Paul's own words. I really do think he's referring to the apostles' writings when he says this. And so, again, the Bible is the book that we are given to unify us. I would hate to see a day when the Lutheran church 
forgets about Dr. Luther's small catechism. I would hate for that day to come. It, the, the small catechism, not, not the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer, but Dr. Luther's words, what does this mean? By my own reason and strength, all that kind of stuff. Uh, those are beautiful words. And for, for centuries, truly, if you had to define what's Lutheran, and you went to every single person who said, well, I'm one, whether they knew it or not, they would have had an impact by the small catechism in their life. They got women priests and like, you know, pigs on the altar. They still have a small catechism in the bookshelf, right? So, so the small catechism of Dr. Luther is a symbol. It's a valuable symbol, and it's, it's good for unifying, but... But as much as I would hate for us to lose it, it's not the Bible. And the day that we are more unified around, you better go and learn catechism, than we are around, we all read the Bible together because it's what we do, is the day we're not Lutherans. And might I suggest to you then, we're right on that edge, aren't we? I'm not saying you, I'm not saying you, but the whole. Lutherans died so that the Bible could be put into German so that they could read it. In English-speaking American Christianity, it sits on a shelf. It says something about us, does it not? It's been made known in the prophetic writings. They're at your fingertips to be your home, to be better than a book of magic, a book of ultimate wisdom. According to the command of the eternal God. This is what God has said. And it's not just like an offer. It doesn't say according to the offer of the eternal God. This is a commandment. Not a law, but a promise with the force of a command. He has said, it shall be. And so it is. So it is for you. To him who says, it shall be to bring about your, it says, obedience of faith. I always struggle with the word obedience. It's just a little too heavy-handed. And it's too much just about tit for tat. It's a bunch of rules. Keep the rules. I mean, there are rules. Like, you shall not murder really means don't take vengeance on your neighbor by killing him. I mean, it really means that. You shall not commit adultery. It means you shall not alter what marriage is. Adultery means to add alteration, to change something. You shall not commit adultery. Don't change marriage. It really means that. And Christians do want to obey that. But what I, what I don't like about the word obedience is it loses the value of hearing. And obey is a word, by the way, it's a Latin root. The root of that word is to hear. Just as in Greek, hupakuo, the word that's here, the root of that word is to hear. Uh, akuo means to hear and hoop on the front end means to be under what you heard. To underhear. So if you can hear obedience as meaning to, to Underhear the words. The words are true. I receive them. Well, then that's what this means, right? I like the word faith for that, though. Trust. Right? To bring about the trust of, well, it says faith, though, right? But again, what is the faith? It is what we believe. It's the thing we believe. The faith. That he is risen. That's the faith. That then you are under the words of. And God has commanded that you be brought to that position. To him who has done all of this, be to the only wise God, one more, one more phrase there, but be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. There's that glory. Doxa. Speak doxa. Speak glory forever. Amen. So Paul ends the book with this just traumatic, is that even the right word? Dynamic. This dynamic shout about how God's doing it. 
And I want you to take that into everything else that I say about false teachers then when we get there. But his warning to obey, or to obey, to avoid the false teacher, he's doing that for you, to you, through you. It's not there so you will self-accuse. The law always does the second use thing. It always does accuse. It's always part of it. But it's not really what it's there for here. Paul actually wants you just to listen and try. And I think Christians under grace should be glad for that. Oh, God wants me to do something good? Well, that sounds good. <laughs> right? That's good. All right. So let's look at that section then here, starting at verse 17, where he says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Now, I can make that much shorter. I can just say, avoid liars. Yeah, pastor, he's my friend. I mean, really? Like your friend. He lies to you and he's your friend? Like you got, you got a bad definition of friends. Huh? Friends don't lie to you. Avoid liars. Yeah, but pastor, it's entertaining. Okay. You're entertained by being lied to. I mean, have you thought that through? I don't think you have. Yeah. Avoid liars. Why? Because you're not as smart as you think you are. Here's the thing about lies. They tell you a lie once. You go, that's a lie. They tell you again the next day. You go, that's a lie. They tell you again the 3,758th time. You're like, yeah, that's true. That's how we operate as people. It's, it's, a, it's a herd mechanic. It's psychology. It actually is it's kind of good that we tend to herd. It's, it's kind of how we survive as if the groups go in a certain way. We stick with the group. It, it protects us from like wild beasts and things. But it can also be used by a liar to lie to you effectively. You want to scare yourself to death? Read a book called Influence. Just, just look for it on Amazon. It's called Influence. It is the scientific study of how consumer marketing manipulates you. It will blow your mind. They know exactly what they're doing. They have no problem lying to you. So again, the thrust of this is just say to yourself, right? Take out the note card, write it down, avoid liars. Put it on your mirror this week. Just see it. Just see that as a phrase, avoid liars. And then when someone's lying to you, again, what did I say earlier? It doesn't mean like, like you're, at the, you're at the checkout counter and, and the girl lies to you about something just briefly. It's a white lie. It doesn't matter. Like you don't walk away and not buy your bubble gum. Like buy your bubble gum, walk out. But know the person's a liar. Not so you can, I hate that person. No, it's not about having animosity. It's about being able to discern and not letting someone steal from you your eyesight. Especially by means of telling that lie over and over again. So if you find a place or a person where the lie is repeatedly coming to you, try to shut that out. Don't let it be there all the time. Why would you be friends with someone who's always lying to you? Oh, I know, but it glows blue and it makes me feel better after a long day. Okay, still a liar. Huh? Now, the real thrust of the text is avoid liars at church. Okay, avoid liars at church. Pastor, there's liars here. Well, 
we're all liars, but let's get past that. We repent. We know that's not what this is talking about. But when you find that you're in a conversation with someone at church and they don't tell you the truth, or perhaps more importantly, they would cause a division regarding the teaching. Okay, we'll come back to that in a second. But if they would do that, you're supposed to avoid them. Does it mean shun? It does mean don't listen to. Now let's get to this like division regarding the truth. He says, according to the doctrine which we receive. That word doctrine, didaskalia in the Greek, um, it is, it's a hard word to translate because it means doctrine. Uh, but we don't really know what doctrine means as a word. Like it doesn't have a lot of, it doesn't feel the same way that say the word pizza. I say pizza, y'all know what pizza is. I say good doctrine, you're like something I'm supposed to like. Right? So it's kind of where it sounds a little stuffy. Yeah? So, so what is doctrine? Teaching. It means teaching. And again, that, what does that really mean? Um, I, one, of the, one of the best examples I can give of this, I guess, I, used to, I had the privilege for a while of coaching uh, junior high basketball. Um, I, I don't know if you know, I used to be a basketball player. I loved the sport tremendously. Uh, it's been a while since I played, but I, when I was in uh, Naperville, I got to coach the, the eighth grade team. And a, a, a real joy, a lot of time, but a real joy. And uh, I don't know, a third of our practice was me making them dribble full court to shoot a layup, get the ball, and dribble full court the other direction to shoot a layup. We did it for like 20 minutes. And I'd, I'd put on a timer and I'd, I'd make them try to keep score. And if they didn't get to a certain point, they'd put the balls down, they'd run, and they'd have to try to get to that point and try to get to that score so that they wouldn't have to run. And they just go, they just go, they just go. It's called drilling, right? But what was I drilling? A fundamental, a, a basic, absolute basic thing. Because if honestly, if you're playing basketball and you're a foot away and you can't put it in, you're going to lose like straight up. It doesn't matter how many threes you think you're going to hit. But what was that? process that discipline it was the teaching as a reality right i was teaching them by having them do something that was in fact the thing that they were going to be and that's kind of what doctrine means only instead of being about how to put a little orange plastic ball inside a net it's about who jesus is it's about the history of the world it's about who you are in relationship to that reality so again, you could just put in the phrase here, the Bible, anyone who would cause divisions contrary to the Bible, that works as a translation. But then this becomes like, how do we decide who we are here as a people? If we have a, de a debate about anything, anywhere, anytime, is our first question, what does the Bible say? Now, I, I knocked on VBS in the first service. I guess I should do it again now. Like, so, so. We haven't had VBS for hmm, four or five years. It kind of just fell apart um, a little bit before 2020. 2020 didn't put it in the ground. It was already in the ground. Um, and I'll tell you, you know, the, the day I saw it was going to fall apart next year, I just stepped back and let it fall. I was like, oh, there it goes. Uh, um, for me, I, I wasn't too worried about it. I, I don't care for it. I can tell you why. That's not the point here, though. The point is, so do you need a VBS as a church? What should be your first question? What's the Bible say about it? And you might be able to say nothing. 
Let's just say, I think there is something, but let's just say, let's just say that the answer is nothing. If the Bible says nothing about it, how important is it? It's not. It's just not. So do we need a VBS? No, you don't. Does that mean you can't have one? No, it doesn't mean that either. Yeah. But you see that the exercise here is our first reaction to the question is, well, what does the Bible say? And now let me, let me go a little more. So if the Bible does happen to say, fathers, teach your sons. Fathers, teach your children. Does VBS do that? No, it doesn't. In fact, it kind of does the opposite, right? It actually encourages fathers to not teach their sons and think that by sending them to camp for a week, it's going to like do the work for them. Interesting to think about. Again, not, not the real point here. The point is learn to ask the question, what's the Bible say? So it's like a really good question. And as we prayed about in that marvelous colic, asking that question on your own will make us ask that question together, will actually drive us into unity of spirit. In an age when everyone's disagreeing about everything, we are going to be a people who are united in the spirit of Jesus Christ because we're going to go to the place that he has sworn with an oath will unite us. And then that means when you are at that place and you find somebody who doesn't have that spirit and they betray it by what they say, avoid them. Avoid them. Going back to the text here. For such persons, verse 18, do not serve our Lord Christ. And that sounds harsh, doesn't it? That's kind of mean, isn't it? But no, no, it's not mean to tell the truth. And while we're on it, let me, let me correct it for some of you. The Eighth Commandment is not put the best construction on everything. That's not the Eighth Commandment. When Luther wrote that in the explanation to the Eighth Commandment, he intended us to stop bad-mouthing each other needlessly. That's the point of that. But the Eighth Commandment is not tell small lies to avoid hard truths. The Eighth Commandment is tell the truth, even when it hurts. Some people who come to church don't serve Jesus. It's a fact of history. Now, before you start worrying about yourself, remember what I said at the start. None of this is here to make you wonder if you're the one who doesn't serve Jesus. Are you listening? Then you serve Jesus. But don't be deceived into thinking that everyone you will ever meet at a Christian church at all, and, and this one too while you're at it, don't be deceived into believing that they are all serving Jesus. How will you know? You learn to listen to what they say. Well, what if I, what if you don't say anything? Well, learn to say something. Have a conversation about it. Talk about it. We'll get stronger. We'll get stronger. But don't be deceived that there are some who don't serve Jesus. But instead, what do they serve? Their own appetites. And again, it's very easy. Yeah, but pastor, I serve my own appetite. I know you do. So do I. We all have this problem, but we don't only serve our appetites. The person who's going to cause a division is going to cause a division, is going to cause a division for the sake of their appetite. They're serving their appetite and not caring that it's dividing us. Now, I went into another discussion in the, the first service. I don't want to spend too much time on it, on why we will never have 
praise and worship music at St. Paul Lutheran Church. It's because it's serving the appetite. And it has, in fact, if you look at its history, done nothing but cause division in Lutheran churches. Why would we do that? We're obviously not listening to what Paul has said. So, but that's, that's not really what this is about. It's about the fact that, again, you don't want to serve your appetite. You're engaged in a war against your appetite by means of the word of God. So don't be close with people who only serve their appetites. Avoid them because they will lead you astray, right? And again, by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So smooth talk, clever ideas, tricky words. Hey, it's all okay. Don't worry about it. What's the problem? Smooth talk. And then flattery, of course, is that they make much of you. And they try to make you feel like they care about you, but only so that they will have you care about them. Flattery. Yeah. Flattery is an, an awful, awful thing because it's, it is a lie. It's a lie told knowing that the other person will respond to it. And because everyone likes to be told good things about themselves, right? They do. So again, the point here is to know that it is possible for there to be a Christian church that's faithful and active with members in it who don't really believe. And you're not to go around trying to figure out who that is. In fact, your hope would always be that by profession of the truth, by the statement of what you know the scriptures to be, that you would encourage all those who believe to believe more. And even that those who by some felicitous error are not yet believing, but are here, would then come to awakening and be made a believer by your own confession. And then, of course, there is also the goal that we would never be moved by those who only have worldly concerns. That when we have to make hard decisions about hard things, and the parking lot wasn't too hard, but it was a big decision, that our concerns would be the good of the congregation more than what I want. Yeah? All right. So, Verse 19, notice again, this isn't meant to condemn you. Your obedience is known to all. He's talking to you as a Christian. Your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. And, and let me be clear, while I am going to say the truth, as we confess even in Augsburg Confession, uh, Article 8, that it is true, it's always true that there are hypocrites in the church. There will be unbelievers in the church. I approach every single one of you with the assumption that you're a believer until you convince me otherwise. I want you to know that. As your pastor, that's how I view you. I assume you're a believer until you convince me otherwise. And no one in this room is on some list somewhere or anything like that, right? I rejoice over you. I'm saying things to, these things to you, not so that you would think I question your faith or that you would question your faith. But rather, as he says, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. And that means I have to teach you that liars exist, that they exist in the church, and you should avoid them when you figure out that they're there. Yeah? Verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I love it. It's so powerful. What a promise. And you need to hold this not only as like the day of resurrection, although that's clearly the fulfillment of it. 
right? Like you're going to burst forth from the tomb. You're going to watch this big dragon get thrown into fire. And you're going you're gonna to get to laugh and sing while that happens. The God of peace will crush Satan. But it's more than that. You get to walk. You get to tread upon scorpions and snakes now. The demons hold nothing against you now. And the way that this is shown is that in the seasons of life, and these seasons go from every single day you have to every single season you go through, which can include, of course, seasons that are up and seasons that are down. And then this applies not only to you, but to the congregation that goes through generations, generations that believe firmly and vigorously and build, generations that get lukewarm and lazy and lapse. Through both seasons, this goes not only for you and for your family and for congregations, this goes for cities. This goes for nation states and empires. That through it all, no matter what it looks like, you may rest assured that whatever is happening is happening so that you can stand with your head held high and Satan firmly under your feet. Even if that means at the same moment you're kneeling to drink the precious blood and feast upon the glorious body of Jesus who nailed that Satan's face to the cross with his own pierced scars and wounds. Cling to that. God will soon crush Satan today, this week, this year, the rest of your life, again and again and again. By your trust that God will crush Satan, you will see it come to pass again and again and again until that day where it's done once and for all, gloriously for everyone. What a thing. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Okay, so we got about seven, eight minutes left. We're going to go through these names here at the end of the book. This is like the bonus section here. Okay, uh, you know, it's, it's not going to have the, the meat that we just got, but there's some cool stuff in here. Let's start with uh, the, where, where we're at in the text. The next verse, verse 21, is a smaller section. This isn't the, we greet you who you are. This is the, we are the ones who are greeting you section. So first it says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. Timothy is Paul's traveling companion through almost all of his missionary journeys. He's a young man, quite younger than Paul. They have like a a father-son relationship. He's the one who 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy are written to. He's a preacher in the church and a glorious, uh, not apostle, but first generation after the apostles kind of guy. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. Now, I'm going to lose. I looked it up, but I've forgotten. Sosipater is mentioned elsewhere as a traveling companion with Paul. Lucius is probably Luke. It's the same name in Greek. It's just kind of a, a different pronunciation of it. And you see this in Greek with a lot of names. Paul's name is Paulos, but sometimes it's Paulu. And sometimes it's pa, there's one other ending, I'm going to lose it, Paulo. And this has to do with how the name is being used in the sentence. Uh, they, they, I know English isn't like this, so this confuses us, but anybody who speaks uh, Latin-based languages, like, it's how they work. Okay? So Lucius, is a, it's a good chance this is the good doctor, Luke, the author of the gospel, who was also traveling with Paul. Where is Paul, by the way? Uh, Paul is probably in Corinth as he's writing this. He's probably in Corinth picking up 
the donation of money that he asked them to prepare in 2 Corinthians on his way back down to Jerusalem to, in theory, give the money, but to actually get arrested and go on trial and get sent up to Rome is what's going to happen eventually, right? But so Timothy and Luke are with him at this time. And I believe Luke will go with him through the rest of that journey all the way to Rome. All right. Um, I, Jason, less is known about, not really sure. Um, I, verse 22, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Wait, I thought Paul wrote this letter. Who's Tertius? Huh? Uh, very common in the ancient world for most people to have terrible handwriting. You were taught to read, but not to write. Why? Paper was expensive. Oh my goodness. Okay. And so if you were taught to write is because you were being prepared to be someone who wrote for a living. Namely, listen to somebody else talk and wrote down what they said in nice, little, neat lines so you could get as much on every piece of expensive paper as you could. And it would appear Tertius is not only one such person, but one who would have been known by name to the Roman congregation. And so he's like, hey, guys, yeah, that's it right there. 23, Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. So Gaius, a member of the church of Corinth, Paul is living with him at the time. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cortus greets you. Uh, two lesser known names. Okay, but those are those that are writing this letter with Paul saying hello to the Roman church. Now, go back to 16 verse 1. we got a bundle of names here. Uh, first, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Chentrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Now, we don't know much about Phoebe, but it's clear that if she isn't the one who's carrying the letter of Romans to Rome, then she's with that group and probably the wealthiest person in that group paying for the trip. She has in the past paid for other things for the church. She's a patron. She takes care of the needs of the church because she can. And so he's like, don't make her stay at a, you know, at a cheap inn, right? Bring her into your house. Bring the party and take care of them. These are good people. That's mostly what this said. Then, now the greetings. Greet Prissa and Achilla, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Two of the most famous names in this list. Prissa or Priscilla and Achilla, a husband and wife team of Jews who became Christians in Rome, left Rome when there was persecution of Jews in Rome, ended up in Corinth for a while, met Paul there, I believe, end up in Ephesus for a while, have some engagements with a guy named Apollos, who is a new preacher of the gospel and kind of gets a few things a little iffy, and so they bring him along on that, and they actually end up back in Rome again by the time this letter's being written. Again, a, a very well-known group, uh, couple in the church. They would have been known by Christians throughout the Mediterranean world. They're also the ones, by the way, who Paul made tents with, if you remember that. For a while, he makes tents. It's, it's with them. So he says, say hello to them, for they risk their necks for my life. Literally, that's the phrase. They risk their necks. To whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Right. So, so recognizing the well-known couple. Greet also the church in their house. So what does that mean? House churches. You may have heard this before, and there's 
there continues to be this movement that sort of believes that real church is house church church. And what does that mean? It's like us and a guitar singing in the house because it's better that way. No pastors, something like that. Um, it's really not what history shows us house churches were. House churches, again, were when you had a congregation that got bigger than 20 or 30 or 40 people in an area, the wealthiest among them tended to have big houses. And they would set aside a room in that house to be a sanctuary. I'm not saying they had an altar and pews, but I am saying that they probably didn't just use it for ping pong later. Like they treated it as a holy place. So, I mean, few of us, I think, well, maybe some of you, I don't know. Like if this thing burned down, could we meet in your basement? Like, like that kind of thing. Yeah. So that's indeed who Priscilla and Aquila are. He says, greet my beloved Epenetus, don't know much about him, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. We know that much. Yeah. Paul was in Asia. This is on the east side of the water, kind of the Turkey area today. He's now living in Rome. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. It's Miriam, uh, I believe, in the Greek, and there's a lot of Marys, so probably not the mother of Jesus here. Uh, greet Adronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known among the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Now, this one I do got to take a moment on, even though we're kind of at time. It's, it's worth it here for Junia. When you run into one of those false teachers, those liars, whose conscience is seared with a need to believe that women and men are not different than each other, that we're exactly the same, and so therefore we should have women pastors because it's only fair, if they know just a little bit, like Wikipedia level enough to be dangerous, they might try to argue with you about how there were pastors in the early church, and we know it because of Junia the Apostle. No. Ignore what First Timothy two says. Ignore what First Corinthians. First Timothy, yeah. Ignore what First Corinthians fourteen says. You got to go to Romans chapter sixteen, verse seven, where it says, "Greet Andronicus and Junia, a girl's name, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles." But see, that really means as apostles. Andronicus and Junia are famous apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Now. Why am I saying this? So you're aware of the argument. It's such a terrible argument. It's like Deborah. I mean, they make this argument with Deborah too. They're like, you can't have women pastors. What about Deborah? Deborah's a judge. What are you talking about? It has nothing to do with the pastoral office. Huh? Uh, Junia and Andronicus are well known to the apostles. It's a good translation here in, in the ESV. What it means is everyone in Jerusalem who was an apostle, they knew these two. They knew these two people because they were Christians before Paul. There's about a 10-year gap in there, something like that. So they're, they're Christians in the earliest times. Now they've moved their way up to Rome. Um, and again, what it says is they're fellow prisoners. They've, they've suffered for the gospel. Right? Probably a married couple. Anyway, you can ask me more about that one if you want more. Uh, from here, it's a little bit downhill. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. We don't know much. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Don't know much. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. So someone who's like maybe a Jew, probably a Jew, possibly in the tribe or the family that Paul's in. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus, a common Greek name. There was a very famous Narcissus in Rome at this time. Could have been him. 
Um, could not have been. Uh, greet those workers in the Lord, Trephina and Trephosa. Greet the beloved Persis, another Greek name, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother of me as well. It's kind of cool. Someone took care of Paul for a while. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. So again, a long list of names. Most of them we, we don't know. They're not in Acts. These are Christians in Rome, though. Each one of these names is a human being who was a baby in somebody's arms, who was a sinner who needed grace, who was a convert to believing that he has risen, and who's someone who you're going to get to shake their hand or even greet with a holy kiss, as he says in verse 16, on the day of resurrection. All the churches in Christ greet you. Final word about the holy kiss. Uh, it was kind of like the ancient Christian handshake. It was nothing erotic. You still see it in some Latin American cultures where, especially among your family, you'll go up and you'll go mwah, mwah, on either side of the cheek. You know, and the more you know them, the more you actually kiss them. I don't know if you know this. Like you actually know them, you'll kiss their cheek. You just meet them. You're like this far away. You know, mwah, mwah. Huh? Um, so th that's sort of what this was. It was just common in the early church that you always greeted each other that way. Um, I'm not sure as Americans we're ready for that. It's not a commandment that we got to start doing this. The real point here is when you see another Christian, say hello, Christian. Good to see you. Welcome here. Glad to feast with you again today. So let's go do just that in the name 